AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Lale Arikoglu, and this is Women Who Travel. A couple of years ago, I found myself absorbed in a New Yorker article by the writer Rebecca Mead which dove deep into the infamous history of Pompeii and the new archaeological discoveries taking place there. The journey from Naples to the ruins of Pompeii takes about half an hour on the Circumvesuviana, a train that rattles through a ribbon of land between the base of Mount Vesuvius on one side and the Gulf of Naples on the other. I got off at the stop called Pompeii Scavi, the ruins of Pompeii, and headed towards the modern gates that surround the ancient city. Before Pompeii was drowned in ash, it had a circumference of about two miles, enclosing an area of some 170 acres, a fifth the size of Central Park. You had that wonderful piece in The New Yorker a couple of years ago, all centered around Pompeii. Yeah. I mean, what a fascinating, just terrifying place to visit. If you've never been to Naples, as you know, perhaps a lot of your listeners will not have done it, you know, it's this beautiful city on a bay, amazing sea, you know, the island of Capri and Ischia are in the distance in the bay. It is one of the most beautiful, sighted cities I've ever seen in my life. And And looming over it, there is this volcano with a sort of dipped out crater at the top that I'm not 100% sure if I've got this geologically correct. But whenever I look at it, I see a a point that is no longer there that was blasted up into, you know, volcanic smoke and ash in AD 79 and, and buried not just the city of Pompeii, but all of the environs and all that whole coastline. And it's this, you know, it's still it's still active. It's still a place that if you're that kind of tourist, you can sort of climb up relatively close. I think this is something I never have done and never will do. It's just this looming presence uh, over the city. We had Rebecca on the show a year ago to talk about walking in cities. And there was a lovely moment when she compared the sounds of footsteps in London with New York. So I fully expected her to be alert to detail in her observations about her trip to Pompeii. You walk around it and you can walk around it for hours. I mean, it it is a really evocative and suggestive place to be. You can sort of, you go into these houses with 
what would have been extraordinarily elegant gardens. And there's one that's been newly excavated with this beautiful garden and this beautiful fresco of flowers that would have been overlooking an internal courtyard. The excuse for my going was that the problem with the site is that it's, of course, vulnerable. It's you know, it's a large area that is exposed to the elements and this borderline between what has been excavated and uncovered and what is still uncovered, some of that margin is very fragile. So there has been this effort in recent years to kind of shore up some of the boundaries. There have been excavations of little bits here and there, a few buildings, not not a ton, but every inch of Pompeii that you dig in, you find something interesting. You don't have to go very far to find something that really teaches you new information, new knowledge about um, how those people lived and worked. So that, that's, what, that's been going on for about five years. I love restaurants and bars and <laughs> eating and drinking, um, which clearly people in Pompeii also love to do. And, and one of those recent discoveries, which I really loved, is the snack bar. You had this like really wonderful description of it because it sounds like it was a bit of a dive. And you describe it as if the Frick Mansion in New York was cheek by jowl with a grazed papaya, which if you visited New York, you might have gone and got a very cheap no frills hot dog from. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the snack bar. Like describe it. What did it reveal? Yeah, well, like I said, it's it's right next to this very elegant mansion that was excavated, you know, more than a hundred years ago. But uh, the you know the excavations ended at the end of this street, so you, there was some damage to that area, and it was more and it was vulnerable, and it was falling, and the rest of it. So they started to excavate and discovered that there there was this little snack bar. Now there are lots of these in Pompeii. And it's not so much that people loved to snack or to go out to eat or anything. It's more that many of the people who lived in Pompeii lived in one room, which would also serve as their workshop for their business or whatever it was. And they didn't have their own kitchen. So you would go and buy your food out. But the snack bar, as in the grandest houses in Pompeii, there are frescoes on the wall of, in this case, things that you might have to eat at the snack bar. Like, I think there's a duck. There's also a dog, which is a, a trope that you see elsewhere in Pompeii as well. Uh, the idea of a dog being represented as perhaps as a, a guard dog or as a member of the household in some way. And the other thing that was very interesting about this snack bar for the archaeologists who excavated it is that for the first time, they were able to analyze what had been the contents of these clay pots that were sort of set in. It was like a counter with these clay pots set into it. I mean, it's a little bit like an ancient deli counter. So for the first time, the archaeologists were able to, to, to analyze what had been in, the, in these pots. And they discovered there had been, I think there was like a stew made from snails and a, maybe a fish thing. And but what was very interesting to the archaeologists about this was that the food was cooked food. And there had always been a belief that these snack bar places didn't sell cooked food, hot food. They just sold uncooked or cold food because there was a law in Rome that said it was illegal to serve hot food in these kinds of um, establishments. 
So what they discovered here is that in spite of the law, the snack bar owner had been selling, you know, snail soup or whatever it was. I love it. So what you learn from that is that the letter of the law isn't always followed. The snack bar owner maybe thought that it was far enough away from Rome that nobody would ever catch him or the law just wasn't observed that it was more important to keep the people of Pompeii fed and happy than it was to strictly observe the letter of the law. Do you know why they weren't allowed to serve hot food? That feels like, I mean, I guess there are so many wild and weird and arbitrary laws in history, but, or was it just a very strict health and safety person? I I don't know for sure, and I'm not sure that it is known, but it does seem to me likely that that would be, it would be some kind of, you know, proto- health and safety directive that you Someone with a clipboard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Coming around and putting up one of those health warnings or, um, you know, counting the number of rats in the back or something like that. Immediately they come alive in my head in a way that like they hadn't before. Like I already have this whole narrative spun about who this owner was of the snack bar and why they didn't want, you know, why they didn't want to follow the rule. I love it. Yeah, yeah. You're writing the novel in your head. The exactly. historical novel that's got him as a character in your head, yeah. <laughs> Because she was on assignment, Rebecca was able to talk to the new director who's heading up the current excavations and took her to see some of the most recent discoveries. I think it was in 2010, there was a totally different narrative about Pompeii, which is that it was a disaster and that things kept collapsing. One of the houses, the House of the Gladiators, collapsed. And there were all kinds of stories, both in the Italian press and abroad, about how you know, the whole place is going to be uh, ruined and erased and nobody can look after it and there's looting and da, da 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 then both the current director of the site and the man who preceded him did this incredible job of turning around the PR story in a way, as well as making the site much more secure and putting in a lot of effort to make the archaeology work. How do you think regular tourists should tackle Pompeii and also be sort of be respectful of it? especially as it is such a fragile site? I mean, I don't think you need to be taken around by a guide. Although, you know, it, it certainly is very interesting and it might save you a lot of time stumbling around places looking for a house that then you discover is closed when you get there. You can't go there without doing some research first. You could read my article in The New Yorker and it would tell you a few, a handful of things that you should not miss and it would give you a good a good sort of guide to go around. But I think if you were just to show up and wander around, you might feel very quickly, you know, very hot and like you didn't know where the most interesting, best, most dramatic, most new things are. So, so yeah, I would say do some reading first and wear some sturdy shoes. Coming up, some ancient graffiti in Pompeii that visitors queue to see. Join me, Esther Perel, every Monday in my office on Where Should We Begin? I'm talking to couples and individuals about love and work, about turning conflict into connection. More than ever, our relationships define the quality of our lives. So let's explore the myriad of relational challenges together. See you Monday.
people line up to sort of file through this little brothel where there are these little cubicles with a kind of bed of well, cement, I suppose, something that, you know, sort of brick cement structure as a bed. And just as in the snack bar, there's pictures of the food that you might want to eat, the duck that you might want to eat. Um, <laughs> there are in this brothel images above the these cubicles of couples in different sexual positions. And you can sort of imagine somebody going and saying, I'll have one of those, please. That is wild. No wonder that's the one that everyone lines up for. Yeah, yeah. We're all so predictable. It's all, and you sort of have to walk through and it's very narrow. So, you know, you can't just cruise by. Americans listening are probably going to think this is like incredibly archaic, but at school, I had to do a few years of Latin and we had these Latin books that were centered around a family that lived in Pompeii. And you learnt how to speak and write in Latin through mm-hmm. the everyday stories of this family. The dad was called Caecilius. It's still registered in my head. <laughs> and then you get to the end of the textbook and you've kind of got invested in their lives and then they all die. It was quite brutal as a 13-year-old. You know, it's funny. I mean, I studied Latin too and I read the same books. Caecilius est in horto, I believe is the first sentence. Oh, and I have um, in my head Caecilius est in via. Oh, well, both of those probably <laughs> at different times. But I don't remember the eruption. Maybe I didn't get to the end of the book. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember that. I just remember the dog and the cheerful enslaved person, Grumio, I think was his name. Actually, I don't know whether he was cheerful, but deeply he was problematic character to be living very in. Very problematic, book. yeah, which is something we might get onto. Yeah, and it seems to have reached those books have really like made an impression on. I think, British school children who had to learn from them. A friend of mine actually managed to find a Caecilius t-shirt on eBay that she now wears proudly. My um, son, who's now 18, but when he was first learning to read, like probably, you know, like a decade, decade ago, he was really obsessed with these books. There were a series of books called I Survived, and they were like, I Survived the Blitz and I survived the Titanic. And there was, I survived the uh, Pompeii. I survived the explosion of Vesuvius. And it tells the story of how, you know, what, of what we know from the historical record of local people kind of noticing something was up with the mountain that they thought was dormant or uh, extinct, I suppose. And, you know, realizing too late that it was going to blow. You know, reading your descriptions of these sites and the lives that were led there, it becomes quite easy to forget. I found myself forgetting that these were, you know, this was real life and real humans. And then I, some detail would make me suddenly be like, oh God, yes, this was, this was humanity. This was a, a, a whole city. Did you find yourself almost starting to numb to the horrors the more that you were in Pompeii and then you would stumble across some small detail and it would all kind of come alive to you again? Yeah, I mean, you know, famously, there are the plaster casts of some of the people who died in Pompeii. And this was this sort of brilliant technique discovered by one of the earlier archaeologists in charge of the site who realized that that there were these sort of irregularly shaped holes that they kept finding as they were digging. And 
poured plaster of Paris into one of these holes and discovered that it was the form of a citizen or a, or a resident of the city who had died trying to escape. And there's a wonderful museum in the site that's got a number of them. And there's you know, there's some others in other places. And there's a sort of fascination of God, you know, this sort of horror movie idea of these poor people, you know, they're breathing their last breath and, you know, writhing on the floor. There's one of a dog who is chained up and couldn't escape. Rebecca has tips for exploring the Bay of Naples later. First, a short dispatch from listener and travel writer Diane Covington Carter about another place steeped in mythology. Our first night in Athens, when we sat at an open-air restaurant, you could see this beautiful lit-up structure at the top of the hill, which is the Acropolis. And it felt magical. You could just feel this vibrating. I could feel this vibrating energy of something that had been there for 3,000, over 3,000 years. I mean, in America, we're so young. And so the next morning when we climbed up there, and Acropolis actually means a hill, we climbed up to the Acropolis and we got their first thing, which I totally recommend, and walked through. And I listened to all the history and I tried to take it in as much as I could. But what really was happening for me was like my whole body was feeling this sense of vibration of something that had been standing there for 3,000 years and had been through earthquakes and vandalism and every kind of possible destruction and still standing there. So I would say we started right after breakfast about 8 a.m. It was still cool. You walk up a paved path and it's, it's quite steep, but we took our time. And you're walking through a park with a lot of animals and cats, especially cats in Greece, they let the cats run around and there's cats everywhere. So I was fascinated with all the cats and, and all the greenery and all the different trees. And then when we got up to the top and we started going through the buildings, what I learned, I had read ahead, but to reinforce is that the Parthenon is within the Acropolis is a special structure for Athena the goddess of wisdom. And that was very powerful. And the story behind it, evidently the myth says that Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Athena, the goddess of wisdom, were dueling or in a contest to see who could become the patron of Athens. It wasn't called Athens then. And so what Athena did is she created an olive tree, like magically, boom, an olive tree grew. And of course, olive trees create olives, olive oil, shade, oxygen, food, you know, and so and then Poseidon struck down his trident, and he created a spring of salt water. And evidently, the king at the time of the area thought, oh, we got a lot of salt water. If you look around here, Greece is surrounded by the sea, of course, I think we'll take the we'll take the olive tree. And so Athena won that contest, and she became the patron of Athens, and then Athens became Athens after Athena. I thought that was a really cool story about what what women bring. 
one of the images that lives in me since my visit to Greece is the Porch of the Maidens, which is this beautiful monument up on the Acropolis of these six women. And they've got their draperies and their, their knees are moving forward. They're in movement. And you can feel their strength and their beauty. And they're holding up this building roof. And I, I was very moved by that, by that image of women from all those years ago, strong, beautiful, and powerful. Getting to know the ancient stories in the area of Naples and Rebecca's tips on the best way to uncover them when we get back in a moment. Hey, it's Chris Klemek here. If you like this show, you might enjoy There's More to That. It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything. Although it's a short drive from Naples to Pompeii, Rebecca Mead loves to take the train. You take this train that goes through all these little settlements along the bay, and um, many of them have been there since, well, even before Roman times, you know, since Greek times. Uh, Naples was Neapolis, which means new city in Greek. It's a Greek city before it's a Roman city. So you just have this like real uh, sense of the depth of history um, and the presence of the ancient world and millennia of, of the past all still mixed up with the day-to-day. Every time I go to Naples or any time I ever send anyone to Naples or go there with a new friend, I go there because this sense of this absolute continuity through the millennia is, is really thrilling and and it makes the life that's being lived at the surface level now our contemporary life makes sense in a way um that so much of contemporary life sometimes doesn't feel uh that it does make sense when you see the city of naples is a kind of still very gritty there are a lot of tourists now i mostly blame elena ferrante <laughs> But it still doesn't feel like a, it's been the tourists have emptied out everybody else. I went to Naples with a classical scholar and he took me down the Via di Tribunale, which is the sort of main street in the historic medieval center. And under these arches, these sort of colonnades, there was a fishmonger. And then we went into the archaeological excavations, which are underground there. And you can go down to the Roman level. And there's a fishmonger just under the fishmonger that's on the street level now. And then you can go down to the Greek level and there's a fishmonger underneath the Roman fishmonger, underneath the contemporary fishmonger. And every time I go to Naples or any time I ever send anyone to Naples or go there with a new friend, I go there because this sense of this absolute continuity through the millennia is really thrilling and and it makes the life that's being lived at the surface level now our contemporary life makes sense in a way 
If you have the time to go further afield and are feeling curious to learn even more, Rebecca has some amazing suggestions. One is the Archaeological Museum in Naples is an unbelievable collection of um, frescoes and objects, many of which were taken from Pompeii, but also from other sites underneath Vesuvius. And if you go to one, you should go to the other because most of the houses in Pompeii don't have frescoes on their walls anymore. So you should go and see the objects and the place they came from together. And the other thing that I would advise is this Herculaneum, which a lot of people have heard of, but is much less visited than Pompeii. It's a bit nearer to Naples, so it makes it a slightly easier journey on that circumvesuviana train. And Herculaneum is amazing because it was buried not by ash, but by lava. So it's deeper. The buildings are preserved to a higher level. And it's a smaller city. It was really a or town. It was really a kind of luxury seaside retreat. And you can go and imagine what it would have been to be standing in these unbelievable beautiful houses with these incredible views over what then was the sea, now is land because it's filled in over the last 2,000 years. But it's very, you know, it feels like if the Hamptons were on a cliff looking down over an incredible, beautiful bay towards Capri, that's where you would be. Um, wow. <laughs> so that's a, yeah. And, then, and there are a couple of other much smaller sites that are well, well worth a look. And finally, a recent Slightly unexpected discovery has been doing the rounds online. Last month, there was an announcement that they had discovered a fresco that seemed to be of a pizza, <laughs> uh, an image of a pizza. And you look at it and, you know, it looks really does look a lot like a pizza. And of course, Naples is the birthplace of the pizza and you know, it has the best pizza in the world and all the rest of it. it you know, this, this fresco does not show a pizza. They they didn't have tomatoes. That is hilarious. But it does look like one. Um, And it does look like a kind of a bread with maybe some, I think think it's thought that it's fruit on it. But anyway, look it up, you know, Pompeii pizza, you'll see it. Maybe like a tart. So this was just found a few weeks ago, or no, it was probably found a couple of years ago, but the news of it was just released a few weeks ago. And you know, it, it gets everybody excited about it again. And, you know, over here, certainly in, in, Britain, I was reading news stories where, or, you know, feature stories where people were trying to cook the Pompeii pizza. And that's what, you know, so there's a, there's this sort of wonderful excitement about it. That's so funny because we just did an episode on national dishes and the ways that countries and cultures and communities try to claim certain foods as their own, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes not. And this feels like it would have been a wonderful segment for that episode to talk about. (laughs) Navel's pointing at the fresco and being like, see? Yeah. (laughs) Rebecca, this was so fun. You made Pompeii come to life for me all over again. A pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'll see you in a year's time. Yes, exactly. Our annual chat. (laughs) Next week, Kate Casson from Bon Appetit takes us on the road as she reveals how they choose America's hottest new restaurants and talks about her own culinary travels. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hannah. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Caroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Duke Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week.
Do you sometimes wake up with the desire to understand the seen and the unseen forces guiding you through this life? And are you ready to begin uncovering the impact of these forces in your day to day? Do you feel that you could use a little push, a little umph, or maybe even a little juju to be reminded of your power within your ancestors to truly understand you? Well, child, if so, it sounds like you need a little juju podcast in your life. Hey, bays, I'm your host, Juju Bay. Welcome, Aquaba, bienvenidos to the Womanist Witchy Insight Show, diving deep into the Black healing journey, pop culture juju, and the ancestral spiritual systems that can help get us free. So please come on over and join the ALJ Pod family. New episodes drop every single Wednesday, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.